and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey, we, um, I, I don't know, I don't know what else to say when we have guests. The only thing I have to say is I'm excited and I am, I'm always excited because it's always nice to talk to people who approach us because they're like, Hey, I like your show and I would like to be on your show. And even now, 177 episodes in, it shocks me that there are people who listen to our show and not only like it enough, but like it enough to want to be on it and And write their own book report, write their own book report. And that's just incredible to me. So we have another guest today and I am super pumped because this is a topic that I know admittedly very little about. Very little about. (laughs) Indeed. All right. Coming to us. Yes. All the way from the other side of this country right now, but about to talk to us about something else on the whole other side of the world. We have Zoe Pete. Welcome, Zoe. Hello, Hello, Zoe. Hello, ladies. Zoe, we're so excited to have you on. Please um, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us what you're going to be talking to us about today. Well, I am Australian. Um, I've been an expat for almost 10 years now living in Southeast Asia and now in the US. I am a travel blogger and a regular at Pub Trivia. Nice. Pre-pandemic. Yes. <laughs> and so I thought it might be helpful, uh, having done a lot of uh, pub trivia rounds in the US now, getting an idea of what kind of questions about my homeland get asked. Uh, I thought it would be helpful for your listeners to get an Australia 101. We love this idea so much. Oh, so good. Mostly, I would say because if Lauren and I tried to do this topic, we would devolve into just the most awful stereotypical accents you've ever heard of. I mean, and I know that we've <laughs> we've attempted an Australian accent before and it's been awful and we apologize. Yes. Uh, and we will not do that. We were going to try our hardest to not pull Mimic any, you. not do any accents today. <laughs> well, here's the thing. There is a girl on Instagram that I follow. Well, it's, it's her dogs. I follow her dogs. <laughs> there are two dogs named Squid or Squeed and Pretzel. <laughs> And the only Australian accented word that I've a- I'm able to say is because she talks to her dogs all the time is hello hello <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> hello so uh, because hello has um, fourteen different um, syllables and <laughs> inflections um, that is as far as I'm going to get in in Australia to try and pretend to be Australian. Well, I was just so, glad you didn't ask me to open with G'day because it's not actually oh, no. something I say. And I feel like I have to almost become a caricature of myself mm-hmm. to say it correctly, mm-hmm. <laughs> the way people expect. So, yeah, I'll, I'll still steer clear of that. That's all right. I'm, I'm good with hello. <laughs> or hello. hello is great. <laughs> hello. <laughs> all right. So let's begin by sizing up Australia because I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about how big or small we actually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of focus on the fact that we are the world's smallest continent, uh, but we're also the sixth largest country. So mm. that's after Russia, Canada, China, US and Brazil. For a visual on that, Australia is about the same size as the lower 48 states um, or about twice the size of Europe. Oh, wow. Okay, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> so we used to be considered the world's largest island, at least. That was the way we mm-hmm. were taught at school. Um, but it seems the definition of that has changed. And now uh, islands are anything up to a continent. Oh, so okay. now if you get asked in trivia what the world's largest island is, they're expecting Greenland. Mm, okay. And I think this is a secret ploy by Greenland. I think mm-hmm. they said, look, no one knows anything about us. We don't have any claim to fame, so we want world's largest island. Australia can still be the smallest continent, but we want largest island. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> they paid off the geography people. Yeah, <laughs> they did. They did. Uh, but we, Australia does have another uh, claim to largest island, which I'll talk about later. Okay. Um, so even though we're very comparable in size to the US, where we differ hugely is in population. Mm-hmm. So for a comparison, the US currently is about 328 million people and Australia is 25 and a half. Oh, okay. So that equates to about three people per square kilometre or nine people per square mile in Australia. And in the US, it's about 35 people per square kilometre or 91 per square mile. Oh, wow. Okay. Quite a big difference. Absolutely. Um, Australia, uh, about 85% of the population lives within 50 kilometres of the coast. And I just realised I didn't do that translation into miles for you. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) This is an Australian episode. We're going to have, we're just going to have to deal with it. very far. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So Australia is divided into six states and two territories. Our capital is Canberra and it's located in what we call the ACT or Australian Capital Territory. Um, Western Australia is our largest state. It's about 33% of the mainland. So it is bigger than Western Europe and it's more than three and a half times the size of Texas. Oh, get that, Texas, in your face. In your face, Texas. When people say, I drove all day and I'm still in Texas, Australians are like, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) But not a Foster's. (laughs) Exactly. I'm glad you know that. Well done. Uh, So the capital of Western Australia is Perth, and it's also the most isolated city in the world. Mm. Wow. There are 8,222 islands within Australia's maritime borders, and that includes the Torres Strait Islands. Um, There are about 274 small islands in the Torres Strait. That's the water that separates our most northerly point, the Cape York Peninsula, and New Guinea. Okay. Some geographic superlatives. Our longest river is the Murray River, which is about 2,508 kilometres or 1,558 miles. Our tallest mountain is Mount Kosciuszko, and that's a very Australian pronunciation of a Polish name. (laughs) Uh, So the mountain was named after the same Polish general that the bridge in Brooklyn is named after. There's also a town in Mississippi named after this same general. And if you've ever been or visited D.C., there is a statue of General Kosciuszko uh, because he was commissioned by George Washington to build the military fortifications at West Point. So that's the connection. Wow. All the same Kosciuszko. And Mount Kosciuszko is only about 2,228 metres, which is 7,310 feet tall, about a quarter of the height of Everest. Mm. Australia is not known for having very high mountains Mm -hmm. and that's basically because the country is situated in the middle of the tectonic plate. We don't have a lot of major faults running through us and so that means we also don't have any live volcanoes, we don't have major earthquakes. Uh, Our natural disasters tend to be climate related, Mm -hmm. so prolonged drought, wildfire and floods. 
Oh, yeah. 2020. I mean, we all forgot about the the fires in Australia. Just starting again. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully it'll be much, much better than last year. Mm -hmm. That was horrific. So moving on to a little bit of history. Australia's first human inhabitants arrived about 60,000 to 70,000 years ago. Uh, the oldest human fossil found in Australia is Mungo Man, and he, he was found near Lake Mungo in 1974, and he's been dated about 42,000 years old. Wow. I've oh never my gosh. heard of Mungo Man. Yeah, never <laughs> How about that? Yeah, he's got sort of a scientific name, which is just a bunch of numbers and letters, but I think <laughs> Mungo Man is more catchy. <laughs> yeah, I like a- Mungo Man better. Yeah. <laughs> The remains of a 40,000-year-old female was also found in the Lake Mungo area, and she is believed to be part of the world's oldest cremation site ever found. Whoa. That's cool. Is she Mungo woman? Uh, She didn't seem to have a name. Figures. But, yeah, Mungo woman works. (laughs) Typical. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The term Indigenous Australians refers to two ethnically and culturally distinct groups. We have the Aboriginal peoples who are on the mainland and Tasmania and the Torres Strait Islander peoples who live in those islands I mentioned earlier, the Torres Strait Islands. So Indigenous Australians um, have been widely regarded to be semi-nomadic hunter and gatherers, but there was some evidence uh, at the the um, time of European settlement that there were permanent colonies and there was some agriculture and aquaculture in use. Mm. Also at the time of European colonisation, it's estimated there were about 500,000 to a million Indigenous people in Australia and they were divided into 500 nations and 250 different language groups. Wow. Oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. So Aboriginal peoples is very much an umbrella term. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit about uh, like Native American peoples in the U.S., where it's it's you know a lot, many, many, many different tribes who are nomadic um, by historically historically nomadic, and you know have multiple different languages and multiple different cultural you know expressions and that kind of thing. But it's they're lumped under the umbrella of you know Native American. I think for us having it in the perspective of Australia is about the size of the lower forty-eight states, like that really then we can kind of see that similarity between mm-hmm. um, dealing with the Native Americans here and also kind of how how it would be so diverse and how there would be so many different cultures in, in the Aboriginal culture too. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of similarities with Native Americans from what I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first known landing by Europeans was by a Dutch navigator named Willem Janszoon in 1606, and he dubbed the land he discovered New Zealand after the Dutch province of Zealand. But the name didn't stick, so Dutch cartographers recycled it for what we now know as New Zealand. Mm. <laughs> They're like, well, we'll you got the find leftovers. So about 30 Dutch navigators explored the western, southern and northern coast of Australia in the 17th century and referred to the continent instead as New, New Holland. Okay. Mm. And in 1768, Lieutenant James Cook of the British Royal Navy set out from England to observe the transit of Venus from Tahiti. And once that was complete, he unsealed some secret orders to search for Terra Australis, which is Latin for southern land. Mm. And he sailed through the Polynesian islands, circumnavigated and mapped New Zealand, and then reached the southeastern coast of Australia, 
which he already knew to be New Holland. He arrived there in April 1770. So a lot of people say Cook discovered Australia, but that's technically incorrect. He knew Australia already existed. Mm. He was looking for a la- another landmass further south. All these Again, explorers. Like Colum- yeah, like, kind of like Columbus, where he wasn't... He wasn't like he didn't discover he didn't <laughs> discover North America is that he was looking for a shorter trade route to the Indies mm-hmm. and just thought he was in yes India and Southeast Asia, but and believed that until like the bitter end, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, Nope, not a real place. Well, he was Italian. Very <laughs> yeah, stubborn. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We digress. <laughs> Please, it's true. So Cook proceeded to map the east coast of Australia and he noted that Botany Bay, which is part of Greater Sydney, would be a favourable spot for a settlement. And he named it Botany Bay because of the unique specimens that the voyage botanists collected there. It's such a lovely name. It is a great name. So after mapping the east coast of Australia, he claimed the coastline for Britain and dubbed it New South Wales. And for more on Cook's adventures in the Pacific, listen to episode 91, Aloha from Hawaii. It's very good. It's very good. (laughs) Thank you, Zoe. (laughs) So the first fleet, as they're referred to, was a group of British ships that arrived in Botany Bay on the 20th of January, 1788, to establish a penal colony. Uh, There were 11 vessels with about 1,000 settlers and 700 of which were convicts. Mm. After arriving in Botany Bay... Captain Philip, who was in command of the first fleet, decided the bay was too open, the soil was too damp, so he moved the party up to Sydney Cove, which is a small bay on the southern shore of Sydney Harbour. And there he established the first permanent European colony called New South Wales on the 26th of January, 1788. Mm. Two points there. The settlement turned into modern-day Sydney Mm. and the date, the 26th of January, is currently our official national day called Australia Day. There are some movements to change the date of that because, of course, for Indigenous Australians, that was the beginning of an invasion. Yeah. Oh, right. So very different connotations. After the establishment of the penal colony in Sydney, uh, further penal colonies were created in Tasmania and Queensland. Western Australia was established as a free colony and they accepted convicts later on. South Australia and Victoria were free colonies. Mm. Over the 80 years between 1788 and the final penal settlement uh, transport in 1868, around 162,000 convicts were transported from overcrowded prisons in Britain and Ireland to Australia. And about one in seven of them were women. Oh, oh that's I didn't think Just about that at all. That surprised me. Huh. I'm sure a lot of that was like they were poor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like absolutely. It was Dickens mm-hmm. yeah. type time. You can imagine the poverty and the overcrowded inner city areas like London, whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you would think that being that you've been put on a ship and sent to what would have felt like the ends of the earth, mm-hmm. it was a six-month voyage, Oof. you would have had to have done some pretty serious things yeah. wrong. Um, but actually, most of them were convicted of petty crimes. It could have been as small as stealing a loaf of bread. Yeah. 
And the reason is in 1723, there was a system known as the Bloody Code established in Britain. And under that code, there were more than 220 crimes punishable by death. Oh, my God. That's a lot. That's so many. It is a lot. And the courts were looking for a punishment that was less extreme than hanging, but tougher than a fine. And that's how they decided to begin transportation. And originally, the prisoners were actually sent to North America. But with the timing of US independence in 1776, they needed a new place to send the convicts. And so they settled on the new colony in Australia. Mm -hmm. Because there wasn't anybody there to be like, "Uh, no, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> at least with it, with enough power, I should say. I shouldn't say that there it, weren't and there wasn't anybody there, but yeah, yeah. Uh, their perception was there was no one there mm-hmm. worth worrying about. <laughs> so in the past, our convict heritage has been sort of a source of shame for a lot of Australians. It was glossed over for a long time in um, history when it was taught in schools. But in the last 30 or so years, we've really embraced this unique aspect of our history. And you'll often hear Australians kind of joke about how, oh, we're all descended from criminals. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the same way that some of us like to perpetuate the myth that everything in Australia will kill you, it kind of gives us instant street cred. Mm -hmm. Oh, we still believe that. More gangster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And I think I've read somewhere, like there was some joke like, Australia, because you've lived in the you've lived in the U.S. longer, you know, than just being in Seattle right now. So I would like to ask your opinion about this. I read somewhere someone made the joke that Australia is just Texas with weirder accents and more things that can kill you. Um, is that true, Zoe? <laughs> Well, to be honest, I've seen a lot of the U.S., but, uh, but I haven't been outside the airport in Texas. Okay. So I don't mm. have a fair comparison at this point. That's very diplomatic of you. Thank you. <laughs> 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 I'm sure that's true, though. I think that's probably true. That's of I course. Yeah. <laughs> so even though uh, we like to claim, or at least some of us like to claim that we're all descended from criminals, that's not actually true. Um <laughs> there's about 20% of modern Australians are descendant from convicts. Mm. So I have two convicts in my ancestry, two Irish convicts. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, like how did you Very find proud. out? Is it just like you trace um, through like ancestry and things like that? Exactly. I've been tracing my family tree for many, many years. So mm. uh, I found a lot of that information through ancestry. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. cool. I mean, 20% is not nothing. That's, you know, that's one in five Australians have that in their family history. Certainly, it's not insignificant at all. Yeah. 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 English navigator and cartographer Matthew Flinders was the first to circumnavigate the continent in 1803, and he was also the first to suggest the name Australia. Mm. Following that, gold was found in Ballarat in Victoria in 1851, and that triggered a gold rush. And that led to an influx of migrants from China, North America, and Europe. Mm. And the colony of Victoria, its capital, Melbourne, grew exponentially in that that time period. The largest gold nugget, this is a great trivia question, (laughs) the largest gold nugget ever on record was dubbed the Welcome Stranger, and it was found at Mulligal, Victoria, in 1869. I love that name. That's a great name. It weighed... 
Um, it weighed 78 kilos or 173 pounds and yielded what? 71 kilos or 156.6 pounds of gold. Oh, my God. That's a big thing of gold. <laughs> it is huge. Oh, my gosh. That's huge. They very swiftly melted it down. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. And sent it off to the Bank of England. Mm. Uh, so, unfortunately, you can't still see it today. It mm. should be in a museum, really. Yeah. The gold rush also gave rise to the Bush Ranger, and this is Australia's answer to Brit Britain's highwaymen or the outlaws of the American Old West. Mm -hmm. They often began as escaped convicts or in later years they were the children of convicts and they basically hid out in the bush and made a living out of armed robbery. We just had a question recently on Learned League about um, Ned Kelly. And I was about to yeah. Ned Kelly. Yeah, so he would be our most famous, well-known example of, 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 a, of a bush ranger. So on 1st of January 1901, Australia's six separate self-governing colonies, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania and Western Australia, united to form the Commonwealth of Australia. And Fiji and New Zealand were both part of the talks leading up to federation, but they decided not to join the new country. Interesting. In 1911, the Northern Territory was split off of South Australia, uh, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory were formed. So that completes our six states okay. and our two territories. You know, we don't really hear much about Canberra outside it just being the capital. No one ever yeah. talks about it. No one's ever from there. There's never yeah. any like cool events that we hear about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's like, yeah, that's right. There's nothing there. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah. No, there, there are. Um, I think increasingly there are some cool festivals and things going on in Canberra, but you don't hear a lot about them even mm. in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> It's well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting to think about, like, um, like we think about state capitals, right? So, like, there are very few. I mean, I can't think of any any at the moment um, state capitals that are like the hub of culture. You know what I mean? Like, like nobody goes to Albany, New York. For, yeah, like, I do. You're gonna you know, mention that. You're like <laughs> well, Albany's Al a dump. Albany is a dump, and. and like, I'll be the first person to tell you that Albany is a dump. But, like, who's going to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? You know what I mean? Not a lot of people are going to Harrisburg. Exactly. So, I feel like it's, like, a government hub, but it's not necessarily, like, like, it's not, it's not, like, a the place to be kind of thing. It ends up just being kind of, like, a weird mishmash of, like, government workers and, like, people who can't find a place to go anywhere else. Not that this is the case with Canberra, but I'm just saying, like... Don't tweet at us about this one. <laughs> We're going to have people from all the different states being like, what are you talking about? Boston yeah, is mean? great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one of the motives behind Federation was actually a common immigration policy and Australians wanted immigrants. Uh, they needed skilled immigrants and they preferred mm -hmm. white immigrants. Oh. So leading up to World War II, British migrants were given preference over all others. Mm -hmm. And the white Australia policy is a umbrella term used to describe a number of historic policies that excluded non-European people from migrating to Australia between 1890s and 1950s. And some elements of those policies remained in place until the early 1970s. Wow, that's late. That's surprising. <laughs> it is. 
very late. Uh, between the early 1860s and 1901, Pacific Islanders from places such as Vanuatu, Solomon Islands and New Caledonia were brought to Australia as indentured workers to provide cheap labour on the sugar plantations. Oh. And the descendants of those today form Australia's largest non-Indigenous black ethnic group referred to officially as South Sea Islanders. Mm. Okay. So a lot of them were recruited under duress, mm -hmm. uh, lured onto ships to get them to come to Australia. And then Australia basically, uh, there were some complaints that they were taking Australians' jobs and so then they were forcefully deported later oh. on. Oh, my God. So these are the oh. descendants of the people who managed to somehow escape that deportation. Wow. Post-World War II, Australia believed it had to populate to protect against future invasions because Britain was busy taking care of itself and couldn't be relied on to help. So the, the catchphrase was populate or perish. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Australia <laughs> began to encourage non-white immigrants at that time. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Many immigrants were Europeans displaced by World War II, particularly from Eastern and Southern Europe. And there were also large numbers from the UK that took advantage of an assisted immigration scheme. Mm. That immigration scheme meant that they only had to pay a £10 processing fee to migrate to Australia. And therefore, they became no, known colloquially as £10 POMs. And that term was derogatory. The word <laughs> POM is derived from pomegranate, which was rhyming slang for immigrant. Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh my <laughs> <laughs> How very cockney. Yeah. Very. Um, I've, you know, what, uh, my last name, like, it's Croatian. If, if I pronounced it correctly, it would be Novakovic. And um, when I've looked online to be like, okay, where, where do other Novakovic's live? There is a big population in Australia, surprisingly. Hey, and I was like, why did all these Croatians end up in Australia? And this makes perfect sense. Yes, I know a few myself. <laughs> <laughs> Croatians, that is. Yes. So in the late um, in the 1970s, the last of the white Australia policies was dismantled and Australia officially entered a phase of multiculturalism. Mm. As of 2019, there are about 7.5 million immigrants living in Australia. That's people that were born outside of Australia. And that equates to about 30% of the entire population. And the largest groups of immigrants uh, by country of birth are England, China, India, New Zealand and the Philippines. Mm. Another interesting trivia ripe fact, Melbourne has the largest Greek population outside of Greece. Get out. That's so interesting. I love learning stuff like that. Yeah, that's so great. Um, or some Greek food in Melbourne if you want Greek oof. food. Mm, I love Greek food. Um, I have read somewhere, not that I'm like reading like reams of books, but I think I probably read it in like some murder mystery novel that I read recently, but that um, Australia has, it has a very friendly immigrant um like system at the moment is that they're they're very friendly to incoming immigrants that they don't make it very difficult to emigrate to into the country yes we have an aging population so we're very wary of getting young people young skilled people into the mm -hmm. country uh, obviously i don't have personal experience with uh, how that works, but um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would say we're pretty open to it at the moment. There's yeah. so much land. Yeah, yeah. It's just a <laughs> lot of so desert. There's so much room. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so Australia has three official flags. 
oh. uh, our national flag of Australia. And if you look at the New Zealand and the Australian flags, they're very, very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, the quickest way to tell them apart is the Southern Cross constellation, which is depicted on both flags. Mm -hmm. On New Zealand, the stars are red, and on Australia, the stars are white. Mm. Perfect. So there's some other subtle differences, like the number of points on the stars, etc. But the easiest way to New Zealand is red, Australia is white. Mm. We also had the Australian Aboriginal flag and the Torres Strait Island flag are oh, nice. official. Our national colours are green and gold, which are taken from our national floral emblem, the golden bottle. And if you can't picture a golden bottle, uh, imagine a plant with flowers that look like tiny yellow pom-poms and oh. long slender green leaves. It sounds adorable. Uh, it is lovely. Uh, our favourite winery that is here in Rochester it yes. also has um, their Australian um, counterpoint is in Adelaide. And so they do a lot of like Australian reds and a lot of like Finger Lakes whites and stuff like that. And um, I had, they, they did a Muscat in the last year and it's a golden wattle Muscat. And it's very tasty. It's like a very mm -hmm. like rich fortified wine with like lots of interesting notes and stuff like that. And I didn't know what a wattle was. <laughs> Until right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sounds like a great wine. Mm. It's very good. The Commonwealth Coat of Arms is a shield containing the badges of the six states along with the golden wattle, and it's guarded by a kangaroo and an emu. Mm. Australians love to joke that we're the only country that has no problems eating the animals on its coat of arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not allowed to eat eagle here. <laughs> no, definitely not. We get you. You go to jail for a long time to eat any if you eat an eagle. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I, I don't know how common it is. You know, most Australians, but you can don't eat kangaroo or emu, but you absolutely can, and you can find their meat in the supermarket. Oh, sorry. Mm. The kangaroo is generally accepted as our national animal emblem, and the boxing kangaroo also has a long history as a symbol in Australia dating back to 1891. Today, the boxing kangaroo is usually displayed at international sporting matches and that came about because in 1983, there was a boxing kangaroo on a flag that was flown by the boat Australia 2 when it won the America's Cup. Oh, yeah. Oh. So it became very popular and after that, the Australian Olympic Committee bought the rights to the image. So that's how it became associated with a lot of sport. Our national gemstone is the opal, and the opals is the name of our national women's basketball team. Oh, I love that. Uh, Australian opals are so stunningly beautiful. Like, I've seen a lot of videos of people, like, cracking them open, and they're, like, it's like looking into, like, a beautiful, colorful, glowing cave. Like, they're just so incredibly, stunningly beautiful. I really love opals. Um, they're so delicate, though. But, yeah, that's awesome. I love them, too. They're my birthstones, so I'm extra biased. <laughs> so jealous. <laughs> so Australia has no official national language, but English is the most commonly spoken. And Australian English is essentially British English, with a lot of sort of unique Australian adaptations and colloquialisms on top of it. Uh, our national anthem is officially titled Advanced Australia Fair. Australia is one of 72 countries that drive on the left-hand side of the road. Mm. <laughs> we moved to decimal currency in February 1966 and adopted the metric system in 1970. 
And we said, no, not us. <laughs> not America, us. you can't tell us I what to do. I say it. We stand alone. <laughs> so now we have to convert in everything, literally everything. <laughs> uh, a little bit about our cuisine, uh, because it's very hard to define Australian food. Mm -hmm. uh, bush tucker is how we refer to the hunter-gatherer diet of Indigenous Australians, which is obviously native flora and fauna-based. Our British heritage informs a lot of our cuisine, none more so than the meat pie. Meat so Australians each consume an average of 12 meat pies per year, which is about 270 million pies, uh, which is second only to New Zealand, interestingly enough. And pies are heavily associated with football, kind of like hot dogs and baseball. Ah, I nice. love that. Man, I'd eat, an, I'd eat a meat pie I need to eat <sighs> meat pie right now. Shoot. Me too. Right? Delicious. It's a great way to eat meat. Should have done an eat along. <laughs> <laughs> we should have. <laughs> so the Sunday roast is still very culturally important, uh, adopted from our British roots, obviously, and Aussies consider the lamb roast to be our unofficial mm. national dish. So there's about three sheep to every person in Australia. We like our lamb. We eat a lot of it. It's very accessible to us. Sure, yeah. You might have heard in the Men at Work song, Down Under, they mentioned a Vegemite sandwich. Yes. Oh. So Vegemite is a real thing because yes. I've had some questions over that. Um, it's a savoury spread made from the yeast which is left over from the beer brewing process and it's very high in B vitamins. It's salty, it's bitter, and if you haven't been raised on it from birth, you will hate it. Do you like it? I love it. Really? Now, isn't it true yeah. that you just have to do like a thin layer of it? Like you can't be like slap it on like it's peanut butter. Like you're just exactly cruising Very thin for a layer, And it always has to be with something creamy like butter, cheese, cream cheese because okay. it balances the bitterness. Okay. All Tip right. there if you do go for it. So even Anthony Bourdain didn't like Vegemite. <laughs> and he's a pretty adventurous eater. So. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Was. Rest in peace. Uh can we take a moment to talk about shrimp on the Barbie? Please. Please. <laughs> okay. So this quote will aggravate a lot of Australians because it's incorrect, so to speak, and most of us have no idea where it came from. Mm. Uh, a few years ago, someone said it to me at a party here in the US, and I thought, I've got to, I've got to get this straight. I've got to know where this originated. So I did some research, and it came from a line in a television ad that was broadcast here in the US in 1984. It was commissioned by Tourism Australia, which is our official government body for tourism, and it was to promote American tourism to okay. Australia. So the ad starred Paul Hogan, pre-Crocodile Dundee, mm -hmm. and he's visiting various parts of Australia sprouting corny lines, and it ends with him standing behind a barbecue with a pair of tongs saying, come on, come and say good day. I'll slip an extra shrimp on the barbie for you. <laughs> uh, so there are, I have a lot of issues with that line, um, but the glaringly obvious one is that Australians don't use the word shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> We call them prawns. Yeah, like right. the British do. Right. Yeah. Mm. So, so Australia, you did this to yourself. We did. <laughs> you played your congratulations. You played yourself, Australia. <laughs> we did. They obviously did not think this line would become as big as it did. Oh my no. gosh. Um 
it is said that they changed it from prawn to shrimp to avoid cross-cultural confusion, mm-hmm. to which I would say you didn't change barbecue to grill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because that has a different meaning between Australia and the US also. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Also, prawns in Australia are usually eaten boiled. Mm-hmm. It's not unheard of for us to put them on the barbecue, but we would much more commonly eat them boiled. So I'm not sure why someone in the boardroom <laughs> that day didn't say, let's just change it to steak. <laughs> it's the same word in both countries, and Australians cook lots of steaks on barbecues. Yeah, I don't think we bar- like we don't grill shrimp that often. Like, it's not like it's a thing, you know? <laughs> like, it's not no. like something that we would be like, ah, yes, grilled shrimp. Only I know at Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Have you have ever you eaten been an Outback, Outback Steakhouse? <laughs> I have. Oh, bless you. Just so, uh, the Bloomin' Onion. Is that, is that your is national that dish? Is that the secret national dish of We had never heard of it. <laughs> but everyone recommended it. Oh. I, mean, I mean, it's, it's tasty. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. you deep fry yeah, anything. Honest, we didn't end up ordering it. <laughs> I mean, you didn't miss much. It's basically just, you know, like... It's just fried onion with ranch dipping sauce. I mean, you know. We figured. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of desserts worth mentioning, pavlova. Mm -hmm. Now, we battle with New Zealand over the origins of pavlova. We both claim to have invented it. Okay. Uh, It's basically meringue, which is served with fresh cream and berries or other seasonal fruit. And it was named after the ballerina Anna Pavlova, who was touring Australia and New Zealand at the time. And its fluffy meringue was said to evoke the vision of her tutu. Mm. You know what? What I wouldn't give to have a dessert named after me, you know? There's so many. (laughs) There's so many out there. uh, I'm sure you might mention it too. The other one that's named after a lady in Australia. Mm. The the, um, Peach Melba. Oh, I am going to mention uh, Dame Ellie Melba, but I had had not included her as her 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 namesake dessert. That's what we know her for. Well done. <laughs> I didn't know that was out there. <laughs> oh, we know our desserts. So, actually, it's a good segue uh, to the next one, which is Lamingtons. Ah. Because mm. Lamingtons were named after Lord Lamington, who was the governor of Queensland at the time. And they're basically cubes of sponge cake dipped in molten chocolate and rolled in shredded coconut. But Lord Lamington didn't like them very much. And he's actually quoted as calling them those bloody, puffy, woolly biscuits. <gasps> Which I think is hilarious. Yeah, that's you get a great a way to describe them. And everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Woolly biscuits. <laughs> they're pretty delicious. There's a local place here that makes them. Atlas, Atlas Eats does them. Yeah. yeah. They're great. Excellent. Yes, I love a Lemington. I'll briefly talk a little about our government and politics. I won't bore you too much. <laughs> Australia is a constitutional monarchy. All um, At the time of federation, Australia decided on a hybrid of the British Westminster system of government and United States federalism. The Australian monarch is currently Queen Elizabeth II, who is represented in Australia by the Governor-General. We have two major political parties, the Australian Labor Party and the Coalition. We've had 30 prime ministers to date, including four who served non-consecutive terms, meaning they served as PM more than once, but not back to back. So they're counted individually in that Mm -hmm. 30. Uh, Voting is compulsory in Australia. 
and the voting age is 18 years, which is the same as our drinking age. Nice. It tracks. Yeah. The first independent self-governing nation to give all women citizens the vote was New Zealand <laughs> in 1893. <laughs> Closely <I> was- followed <laughs> in 1894 um, by the colony of South Australia, who did one better. They granted women the right to vote, but also for, to stand for office. Oh, wow. Uh, And when South Australia was negotiating with the colonies in the lead up to federation, their representatives insisted they would join the new country only if women kept their voting rights. That's Mm. great. So basically upon federation or shortly after, voting rights were extended to all Australian women except Indigenous. Uh, So some states continued to exclude Indigenous Australians um, and universal suffrage did not come about till much, much later in 1967. A little about sport. Australia has a number of professional sporting leagues, which include Australian rules football, rugby league, rugby union, soccer, cricket, basketball, baseball, netball, and supercars, which is a touring car racing category. Did you say supercars? Supercars. Supercars. Sounds better than it is. (laughs) (laughs) Unless Um, you're in motorsport. Isn't like the best uh, cricket player ever like the best ever cricket player was australian what was his name bradman yes bradman yes Yes. absolutely the best i learned that from a video game you yeah i learned that from a video game it's called like bradman's cricket or like bradman's (laughs) ultimate cricket or something like that (laughs) i'm sure he'd be impressed Mm mm-hmm Okay, so the most unique out of all those sports is Australian rules football. Yes. So I will just spend a minute on that. Please. Um, It's also known as AFL, which stands for Australian Football League. Okay. And it was developed to keep cricket players fit during the winter off season. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it was played on a cricket ground. So unlike other forms of football uh, that are played on rectangular fields, AFL is played on an oval. Hmm. Now, given I am not an AFL fan, I will try to explain or give you an overview (laughs) of the rules. So it's a contact sport. It's played by two teams. Points are scored by kicking the oval ball between the goalposts or between a goal and a secondary post, which they call a behind post. Hmm. Creative. Players can use any part of their bodies to move the ball. Common methods are kicking, handballing and running with the ball. And there are rules on how the ball can be handled. For example, a player running with the ball has to intermittently bounce or touch it to the ground. Professional like AFL. Exactly like yeah. basketball. So professional AFL consists of four quarters of 20 minutes each and the clock is stopped for instances such as the ball going out of bounds or at the umpire's discretion like a major injury. And Australian rules football was the demonstration sport chosen for the Melbourne 1956 Summer Olympics. How about that? Australia's hosted the Olympics twice, Melbourne in 1956 and Sydney in 2000. And Australia has participated in every Commonwealth Games and hosted it five times. Mm. Olympians to note, Australia's most successful Olympian is swimmer Ian Thorpe, who won nine medals, five gold, three silver and one bronze. Stephen Bradbury is the only Australian to have ever won a Winter Olympics gold medal. 
which he did as a short track speed skater in the 2002 Salt Lake City Games. And if you have not seen or do not remember Stephen Bradbury's gold medal event, you have to YouTube it directly after listening to this podcast. We'll drop the link in our... Yeah, uh, we'll drop the link in in our social social meds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. You have to watch it. It's three minutes. It's worth it. I love it. Ooh. Great. I love it. Track and field athlete Kathy Freeman is the only athlete to light the cauldron during the Olympic opening ceremony and win a gold medal at that same Olympics. Is she? Um, is she Aboriginal? She is. Yes. Nice. Other major international sporting events that happen in Australia are the Australian Open Tennis Grand Slam and the Australian Formula One Grand Prix, which are both hosted by Melbourne. Australia participates in the FIFA World Cup and competes in um, the Ashes, which is a a test cricket series against England. The Bledisloe Cup is a rugby union competition between Australia and New Zealand, contested since the 1930s. Mm. A little Australian music... Opera singers Joan Sutherland and, as you mentioned, Dame Millie Melba, um, the latter which um, her portrait features on our $100 note. Ooh. Uh, in the pop rock area, some Australians you should know are Peter Allen, briefly married to Liza Minnelli and played by Hugh Jackman in the biopic The, um, the Boy From Oz. Mm-hmm. Uh, Olivia Newton-John of Greece and Xanadu fame. Of course. Yes. Kylie Minogue. Yes. Scott Jay. I'm glad mm-hmm. to hear you love Kylie Minogue because she's my hero. So, <laughs> <laughs> Helen Reddy, Keith Urban, Lauren Daigle, Rick Springfield, Iggy Azalea, Sia, and Nally Imbruglia. Rick Springfield? He's got an American accent now. Does he? I think so. He's Wasn't, just been he singing on... Jesse's Girl for 40 years now. <laughs> we saw him on TV yes. a couple weeks ago and we were like, how old is this man? And he was and I Googled it and he way is... older than we thought and also he didn't know old. he was Australian. That's crazy. There you go. I, I only know that one song, to be honest with you. <laughs> so do I we. think it's the only yeah, one. It's the I only it's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, some bands include the Bee Gees, mm-hmm. uh, Men at uh, Work. Uh, Mm-hmm. ACDC, Crowded House, Wolf Mother, Jet, and Flume. Of course, we have many, many, many more musicians and bands. I just took that list from uh, Grammy winners and nominations nice. because I thought they were probably the most internationally known. Mm-hmm. That was my qualifier. Men at Work is a criminally underrated band in the U.S., I have to say, because the lead singer, whose name escapes me at the moment, came out with a... Um, a solo album a couple years ago, and it's excellent. It's excellent, and he's got such a distinctive voice. Uh, Colin, Hay. Colin, Colin Hay. Hay, Colin Hay, yes, <laughs> yep. I just well came that out of <laughs> just came out of my head. Nobody not just... gave me notes. <laughs> Some Australian films that have had a lot of international success. The world's first feature-length film is regarded to be the story of the Kelly Gang, which was made in Melbourne in 1906, and that is a story of Ned Kelly that we wow. mentioned earlier, the mm-hmm. Bush Ranger. Um, so I had to look up what was considered a feature-length film, <laughs> just yeah. to see if we were making some random <laughs> claim. Um, apparently, a feature-length film or motion picture has a running time long enough to be considered the principal or sole film to fill a program. Mm-hmm. So that was back in the day, pre-television, when you went to the cinema, um, usually to see a short movie in a newsreel. 
Mm-hmm. So you might have seen a couple of short movies, but instead you saw a feature-length film. Yeah. Uh, Kokoda Frontline in 1942 was the first Australian film to win an Oscar. It was nominated for Best Documentary Feature. Mm. Mad Max in 1979 held the world record as the highest profit-to-cost ratio of a motion picture. Love that movie. To be honest, I haven't seen it. Oh, it's so good. And very um, dark. (laughs) Uh, Very good. Excellent. You like your dystopian stuff, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the Man from Snowy River is a 1982 movie inspired by the Banjo Patterson poem of the same name and starred Kirk Douglas in two roles amongst an Australian cast. So he played brothers, both brothers. Oh, Kirk, go get it. Crocodile Dundee, of course. Of course. 1986. Mm-hmm. Crocodile Dundee, Dundee 2 in 1988. Needs no further explanation. Uh, Strictly Ballroom uh, mm. was a Baz film released in 1992 and was nominated for a Golden Globe among many other awards. Other Baz Luhrmann movies to know are Romeo and Juliet in 1996, Moulin Rouge in 2001, Australia in 2008 and The Great Gatsby in 2013. I didn't see Australia. It did not get great reviews. Um, Did you see it, Zoe? I did see it. I very intentionally went to see it at the cinema because I wanted to see the landscapes on the big screen. And I think that was the most magical thing about it. It, Mm. The story lacked a bit, but um, it was a very beautiful aesthetic of Australia. Yeah. I mean, Baz Luhrmann is best known for that, right? Like his set design and like his whole like, like atmosphere kind of quality. Like I love Romeo plus Juliet, um, mostly because of the costume design and the, and the set design is just like so incredible. Um, but yeah, that's too bad that Australia was not a great story. <laughs> I don't know specifically about Romeo and Juliet, but his wife does a lot of the costume design for his movies. Mm, I don't know. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Muriel's Wedding in 1994 introduced the world to Tony Collette and Rachel Griffiths. Oh, Tony Collette. She's amazing. She is. She's unreal. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert in 1994 was a cult classic starring Guy Pearce and Hugo Weaving. Lauren Thanks. just exploded on, on the screen, <laughs> by the way. It's so good. It's so good. It's really good. Uh, Baby 19, 1995 won an Oscar for visual effects and was nominated for six more. The Dish in 2000 is loosely based on Australia's contribution to the televising of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Oh. Happy Feet in 2006 was the first Australian film to win an Oscar for Best Animated Feature Film. And then we return to Mad Max, Fury Road, 2015, won six Academy Awards, uh, which is the most ever for an Aussie film. Wow. That was, again, a phenomenal Lauren loves it. <laughs> I love it. Again, the costume design was so incredible. And I forgot the name of the costume designer, and it's going to make me crazy. But she, she, her whole steeze about that was like, this is dystopian, but imagine people like after a terrible event, like a nuclear explosion wouldn't want to dress themselves or surround themselves in like ugliness. They wouldn't want to just wear like drab clothing. They would want to like kind of liven up their lives a little bit, which is why the clothing was so surprisingly colorful and really like worked and had a lot of like textures and colors and things like that. And as someone who loves fashion, it was like just like a visual feast for sure. Also a really good story. And Charlie's Theron is a badass. And I mean, I can just keep going, but we're talking about Australia here. (laughs) 
I am going to have to watch the Mad Max movies in order now. You're very good. Some other Australian actors that I haven't mentioned yet. Kate Blanchett, Ugh. Margot Robbie, Judy Davis, Rose Byrne, Isla Fisher, who is married to Sasha Baron Cohen, Jackie Weaver, Rebel Wilson, Melissa George, Anthony LaPaglia, Heath Ledger, Simon Baker, all of the Hemsworths, mm. Chris Lim and Luke, uh, Eric Banner. Poor, <laughs> Poor Luke. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's big in Australia, but he just hasn't really made it across the pond. You know what I mean? <laughs> One of my favorite, <laughs> I'm sidebarring here. One of my favorite bits in The Good Place is when Jamila Jamil's character is engaged to Larry Hemsworth, who's like, he's he's like a pediatric oncologist and he's obviously like so handsome, whatever, but because he's not Chris and Liam and Luke, he's like the loser Hemsworth brother. It's, yeah, yeah. it's such a great bit. It's a great bit. The Hemsworth are the Hemsworths are well. Let me tell you something. Your country produces very, very attractive people. Very attractive people. Oh yeah, just like universally. I don't think I've ever met a hideous Australian. Well, that's good to hear. It's impossible. Yeah. I'm sure we it's have a- some, but maybe we just keep them squirreled away. <laughs> keep them in the bush. They keep them yeah. in the outback. They're in Western <laughs> Australia. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> a couple more: Eric Banner, Joel Edgerton, and Sam Worthington. Mm. You might have noticed a couple missing there, and that's because I'll loosely call them honorary Australians. <laughs> Russell Crowe, when he is winning Oscars, we claim him. He's an Aussie. When <laughs> he's see. throwing phones at hotel receptionists, mm-mm. no. No, he's no, American. He, he, no, no, he's a New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, and, I get it. And he's never gained official citizenship in Australia. So we're very quick to disown him if he's badly behaved. <laughs> Same with Mel Gibson. Right. On a good yeah. day, he's Australian. On a bad day, he's American. Yeah. And he, he did. also has not gained citizenship, so. Yeah, he um I think he he actually like was born in Syracuse. I think I read that somewhere. Like he was born in upstate New York and then moved to Australia I think when he was 10 or something like that. Um or maybe vice versa. Maybe he was born in Aust- No, because he lived right. He had an accent yeah. for a, a bit. Um but yeah, so yeah, he's actually you can you can say ugh, he's from upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was from somewhere in New York, but I didn't know exactly where. Yeah, Sarah. and you're very close. He moved there when he was twelve. So oh, perfect. Yeah, memory is some more famous Australians. So Charles Kingsford Smith was an aviator who achieved many firsts. He made the first Trans-Pacific flight from the US to Australia in 1928, and he also made the first Eastward Pacific crossing from Australia back to the US. He made the first non-stop crossing of the Australian mainland and the first flights between Australia and New Zealand. How much how much animosity is there between Australia and New Zealand? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, is it playful? Is it like, er, like okay. It's very playful. Okay. There are an awful lot of New Zealanders. I have we we always say kiwi in Australia. We just call them kiwis mm-hmm. after their national bird. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are a lot of New Zealanders living in Australia. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it's very kind of like a big brother little brother type relationship. It's very mm-hmm. we love to you know um, have some verbal spars, especially around things like football. Mm-hmm. Sure. Makes sense. But I Definitely. think we'd be the first to jump to their each other's defence. Okay. Also, if it got serious. <laughs> 
Good to know. Good to know. Banjo Patterson was a poet who wrote the much-loved Australian poem um, The Man from Snowy River and the bush ballad Waltzing Matilda, which (sighs) may consider our unofficial national anthem. Mm -hmm. And Banjo Patterson is pictured on our $10 note. Australians have won the Miss Universe competition twice. Kerry Ann Wells won in 1972 and Jennifer Hawkins won in 2004. Just goes to show, attractive people. That's right. There it is. P.L. Travers, author of Mary Poppins, was born Helen Lyndon Goff in Maryborough, Queensland and lived and worked in Australia until she was 25. Mm. And Jermaine Greer, a feminist and writer, and you can hear more on Jermaine's work in episode 163, The Problem That Has No Name, Feminist Literature. It's very good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) A few Aussie inventions. Not all of them. I've just picked a select few. Uh, Polymer banknotes, which are currently used by 20 countries. Mm. The black box flight recorder. Oh, hey. Spray on skin. Which is basically the practice of tape. Oh, I thought that Julia. was further explanation. She's just like calmly listing things. Look at this invention. Spray on skin. And we're like, Ugh. Julia and I recoiled like she reached through our computer screens and slapped, slapped us. us. Like- <laughs> so it's the practice of taking small patches of healthy skin and growing cells in the lab and then spraying that onto um, damaged skin, which reduces the recovery time and scarring. So it's wow. actually a really good thing, as bad as it sounds. An Australian invented the electronic pacemaker as well as the cochlear implant or bionic ear. Oh, wow. Gardasil, which is the vaccine against four strains of HPV, which is known to cause three quarters of cervical cancers, and Wi-Fi technology. Oh, hey. So core parts of Wi-Fi technology came out of 1970s research into radio astronomy by the CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. Uh, in Australia and they still hold the patents to that and the money that they gain each year from the patents uh, goes into funding more scientific research. That's great. Um, A few landmark bridges, buildings and fences, Mm -hmm. not walls. Oh, fences. Fences, Hmm. as you do. The World Heritage listed Sydney Opera House, designed by Danish architect Jorn Utzon. The Sydney Harbour Bridge, which at the time it was completed in 1932, was the longest single-span bridge in the world. It's now only the seventh. Mm. The Dingo Fence, which was built to protect sheep flocks in southern Queensland from dingoes, which are native wild dogs. Um, And it was built in the 1880s and is one of the longest structures in the world, stretching 5,114 kilometres or 3,488 miles. It's a 3,800-mile-long fence. Yeah. Wow. About dingoes. Does it work? <laughs> Apparently, it was quite effective, although they don't maintain it now like they used to. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. We also have the rabbit-proof fence, which is yes. actually three fences. Um, it's another pest exclusion structure. So rabbits were introduced into Australia and have become an agricultural pest. Mm-hmm. So the fence was intended to keep the rabbits out of Western Australia, pastoral lands. And when it was completed, it was 1,833 kilometres or 1,139 miles. And the number one fence of the three was the longest unbroken fence in the world. 
It's an Who odd fact that? for you. <laughs> Who knew that fences were such a big deal in Australia? I had no idea. There's so many creatures there, Lauren, though. <laughs> no, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, a fence makes guessed. no sense. Should have guessed. All right, moving on to some nature. More than 80% of Australia's plants, mammals, reptiles, and frogs are unique to Australia and found nowhere else in the world. Hmm. I was going to fill in your sentence with our venomous. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, a lot we can talk about there, and I was having trouble narrowing it down. And I had a question come up a few years ago in a trivia round here in the US that was, what is the animal featured on our five-cent coin? Ooh. So I decided to do unique Australian animals as they appear on our currency. Uh, awesome. Back in the day, um, we Australia had one and two cent coins. Mm. Uh, they were discontinued from circulation in ni- uh, 1992. And the bronze medals awarded at the 2000 Sydney Olympics were actually made of recycled one and two cent coins. That's oh. very cool. So you so there's there's no like penny ending to any wow no no i remember them from when i was kid but uh yeah very cool did away with those (laughs) those pesky cents yeah get out of here so on our one cent coin we had a feather tail glider which was a which is a gliding possum unique to australian states bordering the pacific ocean on the two-cent coin, we had a frill-necked lizard, which is a reptile native to northern Australia and southern New Guinea. Wow. Moving on to coins that still exist, our five through 50-cent coins are referred to just generally as silver coins for their appearance, but they're actually made of copper and nickel. Mm. So monotremes are mammals that lay eggs and are only found in Australia. Our first monotreme is the echidna, which has spines like a porcupine and is featured on our five-cent coin. Mm. The second monotreme is the platypus, which is a fairy amphibious animal with a duck's bill, a beaver-like tail, and webbed feet, and it appears on our 20-cent coin. And in between those two, we have a 10-cent coin, which uh, pictures a lyrebird, which is a ground-dwelling bird. Uh, imagine something between a peacock and a pheasant in appearance. Oh. The males have these long, shapely tail feathers that they fan out in mating rituals. And it was originally thought that these feathers resembled a lyre, the musical instrument mm-hmm. for Greek equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, they got the name the lyrebird. And lyrebirds are also noted for their ability to mimic sounds from their environment. Cool. Ooh. On our 50-cent coin is the Commonwealth Coat of Arms, as mentioned previously, which has a kangaroo and an emu. And the emu is actually the world's second largest living bird after the ostrich. Mm. The coins we generally refer to as gold coins because their appearance are actually alloys of copper, aluminium, and nickel. And we do say aluminium, just a side note, <laughs> because we spell it with an extra I. Okay. It's just oh. a pronunciation thing. Uh, so our dollar coin has five kangaroos on it, and our $2 coin has no animals, but it in- instead bears the portrait of an Aboriginal elder modelled on Goya Jungarai, I hope I have pronounced that correctly, um, aka One Pound Jimmy, and he was the survivor of one of the last recognised massacres of Indigenous Australians and the first Indigenous Australian to be featured on a postage stamp. Wow. And the $2 coin also pictures the Southern Cross constellation and a native grass tree. Mm. So I had never noticed before writing this, but it appears that we put all the animals on the coins and people on our notes. Mm -hmm. 
which is why I noted that throughout the other. Nice. It's <laughs> interesting. Plant-wise, macadamia nuts are indigenous to Australia and they're the only native plant to be co- commercially farmed. Mm. Wow. Australia has 1,200 species, species of acacia, a.k.a. wattle, and out of 890 species and subspecies of eucalypts or gum trees, most are native to Australia, and eucalypts form three-quarters of our native forest. Wow. Uh, so I, uh, you, obviously being an audio medium... You can't see this, but I'm wearing my silver-plated eucalyptus leaf today. Aww. It's very pretty. Very I did pretty. notice it when we first got on. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of eucalyptus, uh, have you ever held a koala? <laughs> <laughs> have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. And I really would like well, to. You'll have they to see seem that. very soft. They are. They, they can get mean, though. More yeah, and they're going to hold the right koala. Yeah, I heard that. Aren't they carriers of like gonorrhea or chlamydia? <laughs> Maybe it's chlamydia. I think it's chlamydia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, so. I'm no. just going to hold it. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> I just want to hold him. Give him, a, give him a little koala hug. Yeah, give him a little koala hug. Oh. Got to get a nice one, though. <laughs> I give him treats, and you know koalas aren't bears. Yes, good. An Australian will be very quick to um, <laughs> correct anyone who says koala bear. <laughs> um, Australia has twenty World Heritage listed sites. We have twelve natural, four cultural, and four that are a mix of both. And a few examples of those are. The Great Barrier Reef, mm-hmm. which is the largest reef system on Earth, and it's made up of 3,000 individual reefs. It's clearly visible from space, and its length is about the equivalent to the U.S. East Coast. Wow. wow. Oh, I didn't realize it was that long. Oh, my gosh. The Gondwana rainforests of Australia are the most extensive area of subtropical rainforest in the world. Uluru and Katajuda National Park encompass um, two landforms. Uluru, which was formerly known as Ayers Rock, mm-hmm. which is that huge redstone, a sandstone monolith in the centre of Australia that you'll often see in pictures. It's about 9.6 kilometres, six miles in circumference and 335 metres or 1,100 feet tall. Wow. And Katajuda, which was formerly known as the Olgas, is a series of natural domes covering an area of 3,500 hectares and rising to a height of 487 metres or 1,600 feet. Oh, my gosh. So both landscape features are sacred to the Inangu people. Hmm. Kakadu is Australia's largest national park and it is included on the World Heritage List for both cultural and natural because it contains prehistoric Aboriginal rock paintings. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. And the island I referred to earlier that Greenland cannot take away from us is <laughs> Fraser Island, which is the world's largest sand island. Oh. That is off the coast of Australia. Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of that. And it's a sand so it's so it's a sand island, so imagining it it's entirely made of sand. It is, but it does have like forests and lakes mm. and things. <laughs> Yeah, it's just if you dig down, it's like so. It's just so it's a pile of sand in the (laughs) middle of the water. 
<laughs> I mean, I didn't think it was like a Gary Larson, like, you know, like, like deserted island kind of thing. There's one palm tree with a coconut and the rest yeah. of it is just sand. And there's a guy with a beard and like red tattered clothing sitting underneath sign. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really beautiful and it's very popular for um, camping holidays. I bet. Yeah. yeah. All right. The moment you've all been waiting for, we're going to talk about some deadly animals. Yes. <laughs> so people usually talk about dangerous wildlife in the context of their capacity to kill you. Mm-hmm. For example, how potent their venom is, right? Mm-hmm. They talk a lot less about the risk of actually dying from one of these animals oh, yeah. um, because, you know, that doesn't make such great clickbait or television, <laughs> right? <laughs> So I just want to reassure everyone that there are 24, five and a half million Australians and they are okay. (laughs) (laughs) They're not constantly under threat of being poisoned. (laughs) That's why there's so many fences, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) So not all deadly animals live in the same habitat at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're on the land, you don't have to worry about sharks or marine stingers. Stingers would be the most obvious example of that. Uh, so I am going to give you the countdown of Australia's seven deadliest creatures by the number of people they actually kill. Um, so this data was uh, it's a sample of data taken from between 2001 and 2017. It's animal-related deaths from our National Coronial Information System. And this was current as of March 2020. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, so recent. So recent. All right. So our seventh deadliest creature causing 21 deaths over that six-year period probably unsurprisingly is crocodiles Mm. (laughs) 21 deaths six of those people were fishing and they almost all occurred in the northern territory or north queensland because that is crocodile habitat you can be in any of 12 of australia's largest cities and you'll be outside crocodile territory so that's an example of not all the deadly animals are everywhere. <laughs> okay. Our sixth most deadly creature is sharks. Mm. So 27 shark-related deaths in that six years. <sighs> Number five, bees. <laughs> bees? Wait, we have those here. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I'm never leaving my house. <laughs> So it was usually due to people going into anaphylactic Oh, yeah. Shock. Oh, sure. Wow. Of course. Yeah. I yeah. guess that so 30, counts then. Yeah. 31 bee-related deaths in six Oof. years. Uh, number four is a tie. We have snakes mm. and kangaroos. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen, Jewel, have you ever seen a picture of a, like a male kangaroo? He is ripped. Like they have like, oh, like muscles upon muscles. They look like jacked as hell. It's very freaky. (laughs) Snakes I get. Sure. Sure. You're going to get a snake bite and it's going to be, it's going to, you're going to have a reaction. How, how are people dying from kangaroos? (laughs) I'm glad you asked me. Because we have more non-venomous snakes than, sna- than okay. Ven- okay. sorry, more venomous snakes than non-venomous snakes in Australia. Mm-hmm. So that is understandable. But kangaroos, it's because it usually involves a motor vehicle. So oh. just like in North America, you have to be wary of, say, deer crossing the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we have that problem with kangaroos. So 20 of the 37 deaths caused by kangaroos on this list um, were actually motorcyclists that were struck by kangaroos or struck oh. kangaroos. Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. what a way to go. So that's, yeah. that's quite different than getting than a, than a Jacksonville kangaroo <laughs> breaking into your house and, and punching you. Pummeling, like, you. pummeling you to death. Yeah, I haven't heard of too many people getting beat up by kangaroos unless they actually tried to fight them. Yeah, which is then it's their fault, I would say. Exactly. That's a self-inflicted. Yeah. Yeah. Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Our third deadliest creature with 53 deaths is dogs. Oh, oh man. Oh. <laughs> we have those too. <laughs> we, have those, we have those here. Number two, it's kind of cheating because they grouped a whole bunch of animals together, but bovine. Okay. So cows, bulls, and other bovine animals caused 82 deaths in that six years. Is some of that also motor vehicle accidents? (laughs) They didn't note that. Okay, okay. It is possible. Cows cows are mean. They can be, yeah. 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 Up in dairy country. Stubborn. They they like to bite. Oh, they will bite you. (laughs) They look docile. They do, but nope. Get away. Stay away from them. And the number one deadliest creature in Australia, causing 172 deaths in six, oh six years. Is it man? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. That's all right. I actually excluded man. <laughs> number Otherwise one. you'd be right. Yeah. 172 deaths caused by horses. <gasps> oh, oh, no. So yeah. that's like riding accidents and stuff. And mm-hmm. oh, man. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's not as like, I got to say, it's it's less terrifying than the, than the image memes that make it over here. To, yeah. Sorry, image macros. Uh, make it make it out to be. Because I just keep picturing the thing that's like that big like coconut crab looking spider thing that's just yes. like hanging on a trash can. And it's like, this is what Australians have to do when they go take out their garbage. And it's like, ah! <laughs> So, <laughs> and the spiders and the spiders, Julia. <sighs> they are scary, but as you can see, they don't even make the list. Yeah, so, they're not yeah. even on the list. Yeah, so, we have really good anti venoms these days as well. True. So they're not going to kill you, but they will practically scare you to death. Basically, is what you're saying. Yes, you still want to avoid them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's something you sort of uh, train to do from childhood like you don't leave your, your shoes outside overnight and if you do you check them before you put your foot in in the morning because sure. they like those sorts of places uh <laughs> julia's absolutely <laughs> losing her mind but it's just sort of second nature to us because wow. we grow up with it yeah uh that is it today oh my gosh uh, that concludes our tour of australia that was wonderful that was fantastic um, do you have any like quick slang terms you can teach us? Ooh. Sorry, I'm sorry, to put you on the spot. Put, put you on the spot. No, there's just so many. Do, do <laughs> they really I'll, say I'll... Sheila? Uh, we did. It, I would say it's outdated okay. now. You okay. see, hear a lot less people saying it these mm-hmm. days than you might have, you know, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites is uh, tracky dacks. Okay. Which is short for tracksuit pants. 
Oh, I love that. I'm going to start using that. That's really cute. It's better than tracksuit pants. Love it. Yeah, it's a fun one, and you don't you don't hear it very often. So, mm-hmm. um, do you have any requests? <laughs> <laughs> She'll sing a couple bars of our favor of her favorite Australian slang. <laughs> Um, That's very fun. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. And uh, I mean, the fun isn't over yet. I hear that you have a quiz for us. I do. Ooh. And I have called my quiz, Waltzing Matilda, a quiz about dance and roll dial books. All right. Question one. What is the name of a traditional style of music and dance that is said to have developed in the working class neighborhoods of Buenos Aires, Argentina and Montevideo, Uruguay? Question two. In James and the Giant Peach, orphan James Henry Trotter escapes his cruel aunts and sets off on a world adventure in a giant magical peach. How did James's parents die? Question three. Who was Fred Astaire's best-known dancing partner who appeared with him in 10 films from Flying Down to Rio in 1933 to The Barclays of Broadway in 1949? Question 4. In the book Going Solo, Roald Dahl writes about his travel to Africa and time as a pilot in the Royal Air Force during World War II. What was the name of the prequel to this autobiography filled with tales of his childhood? Question 5. In what iconic dance film does a Chicago teen relocate to a small town where dancing and rock music are banned? Question six. Name the Roald Dahl novel that was turned into a 1996 feature film starring Danny DeVito and Mara Wilson. Question seven. Which Austrian composer, named after his father, also a great composer, is known as the Waltz King and is responsible for music such as the Blue Danube and Kaiser Walter. Question 8. Which illustrator and cartoonist is known for having illustrated 18 of Roald Dahl's books as well as the first Dr. Zeus book not illustrated by Zeus himself? Question 9. Ballet originated during the Italian Renaissance and later developed in France and Russia. Today, it is a highly technical form of dance with its own vocabulary. In modern-day ballet, How many basic positions are there? And question 10. What is the full name of Roald Dahl's dream-catching, snozcumber-eating character shortened to the acronym BFG? We will give you about a minute to think about it, and then Zoe will be back with our answers. Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong Under the shade of a coolabar tree He sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me He sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled Down came a jumbuck to drink at the billabong Up jumped the swagman and grabbed him with glee 
He sang as he shoved that jumbuck in his tucker bag. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. He sang as he shoved that jumbuck in his tucker bag. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. This is a very good quiz. This is a very good quiz, Zoe. I'm excited. That's good. All right. We're going to do our best. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Question one. What is the name of a traditional style of music and dance that is said to have developed in the working class neighborhoods of Buenos Aires, Argentina and Montevideo, Uruguay? Lord, what do you think? Oh, man. I wrote, I was trying to think of my, my past with Dancing with the Stars. And um, all I could think of was like Roomba. <laughs> I, I wrote down Samba. Ooh, Samba. That's very... You know what? I like Samba better. Let's go with Samba. Okay, we're going to say Samba. All right. The answer is Tango. Tango. Oh, man. I was trying to go too technical on it. Tango. Oh, so that tango, makes total sense. Dang yeah, it. it does. <laughs> <laughs> and Tango is a social dance that originated in the 1880s, and in 2009, it was added to the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage List. Oh, very cool. Question two. In James and the Giant Peach, orphan James Henry Trotter escapes his cruel aunts and sets off on a world adventure in a giant magical peach. How did James's parents die? So I I just reread this book a couple months ago. Really? I did because I really like it. It's my favorite Roald Dahl book. Um, but I can't re- I remember they, they die in like a really horrible way like a really dramatic and horrible way, even for a kid's book. And the only thing I can think of is that they were like crushed somehow. They were crushed to death by something. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Oh, poo. I haven't read this book since 1993. Oh, I got, it's a great book. I got nothing. I ha- you know what? I have it on paperback. I'll loan it to you. Great. It's so good. <laughs> uh, so Lauren's saying crushed to death. <laughs> She's nodding. <laughs> so they were eaten by a rhinoceros that had escaped from the zoo. Okay. Yes. Man. Not crushed to death. Eaten. I'm going to write eaten. this down. Write it down. <laughs> eaten Rhino. by a rhinoceros. Oof. Yeah. It's a rough way to go. <laughs> <laughs> the question three. Who was Fred Astaire's best known dancing partner who appeared with him in 10 films from Flying Down to Rio in 1933 to the Barclays of Broadway in 1949. We know this one. Yeah, this is Ginger, Ginger Rogers. Perfect. Uh, so Ginger Rogers was born Virginia Catherine McMath in 1911 in Independence, Missouri, and she had a successful vaudeville career before moving to Broadway and films. Mm. So beautiful too. Question four. In the book Going Solo, Roald Dahl writes about his travel to Africa and time as a pilot in the Royal Air Force during World War II. What was the name of the prequel to this autobiography filled with tales of his childhood? Jewel, do you know? I mean, I'm 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 seeing a cover with the word boy on it, but I don't think it's just called boy. <laughs> I mean, that it's, is that is the name of a Roald Dahl book. Oh, okay. It's just boy. Boy. Boy? Is it boy? Correct. Yes! Good job, Joel. <laughs> um, Boy described his life prior to leaving school, focusing on living conditions in Britain in the 20s and 30s. 
the public school system of the time and his childhood experiences that led him uh, to his writing career. Question five, in what iconic dance film does a Chicago teen relocate to a small town where dancing and rock music are banned? We know this one. I had your. It's a footloose. It is. <laughs> Directed by Herbert Ross and starring Kevin Bacon, Laurie Singer, John Lithgow, Diane West and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I'll just note that the original question was about Footloose. I mean, sorry, the original question was about Flashdance. Oh. <laughs> but I was like the Pittsburgh connection. Yes. But can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Too easy. <laughs> um, question six. Name the Roald Dahl novel that was turned into a 1996 feature film starring Danny DeVito and Mara Wilson. We love this movie too. That's Matilda. It is Matilda. Love that so Time included Matilda in its list of 100 best young adult books of all time. And worldwide, worldwide sales have reached 17 million, spiking since 2016, to the extent that Matilda is now outsells Dahl's other works. Yeah. Love it. I probably make a reference to the Trunchbull like once a month. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He came up with some great names. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Question seven. Which Austrian composer named after his father, also a great composer, is known as the Waltz King and is responsible for music such as the Blue Danube and Kaiser Volza? Joel, do you know? Uh, it's, it's Strauss. Johann Strauss. The second. <laughs> <laughs> well done. It is. <laughs> so born in Vienna in 1825, Strauss, the younger, composed light music, including over 500 waltzes, Pokers, quadrilles, as well as several operators and a ballet. Nice. Question eight. Which illustrator and cartoonist is known for having illustrated 18 of Roald Dahl's books as well as the first Dr. Zeus book not illustrated by Zeus himself? I do not know this. Julia, do you have any ideas? Okay. When she first read the question, I wrote down Quentin, and I was thinking and thinking and thinking. I'm going with Quentin Blakely. Oh, you are so close. Oh, oh damn. It's Quentin Blake. Oh, just oh. Blake. Great. Okay. <laughs> I'm giving myself a half a point on that. <laughs> I definitely would. <laughs> uh, he illustrated over 300 books, including 18 of Roald Dahl's. Very distinctive Yeah, artwork. very distinctive He's- look. Question nine. Ballet originated during the Italian Renaissance and later developed in France and Russia. Today, it is a highly technical form of dance with its own vocabulary. In modern day ballet... How many basic positions are there? Please, Julia did an episode on this. <laughs> did an episode. Well, and I'm going to look like a fool if I get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I listened to you do it, and I can't remember I think a it's single five. thing. That's correct. Okay. Oh, good job, Jewel. <laughs> Simply named first, second, third, fourth, fifth positions, which are the foundation of all formal classical ballet technique. And finally, question 10. What is the full name of Roald Dahl's dream-catching, snozcumber-eating character shortened to the acronym BFG? That's the big friendly giant. It is. Yes. (laughs) Nice. And the BFG was written in 1982, dedicated to Dahl's daughter, Olivia, who died of measles encephalitis at age (gasps) seven in 1962. And Steven Spielberg directed the Disney live-action adaptation in 2016. We started off rough, but we ended up... We ended up good. We ended up pulling it out. Well, (laughs) 
Awesome. That was a great quiz, Zoe. And that thank was you a so much for quiz. coming on the show. You did a wonderful job. Thank you so much. Do you it have anything? To- thank you for having me on. Do you have anything to plug? Well, um, I am a travel blogger. So if you're planning a trip to Australia post-pandemic, um, I have a bunch of resources on the blog at duendebymadamzozo.com. Uh, that's a long URL, so I'll, I'll send you that link. Perfect. Yes. Or you can find me on Instagram at madam underscore zo underscore zo or zo underscore zo. Also, because travel is limited at the moment, I put together an Australian pop culture guide with movies, books, TV shows, and music for anyone who wants to take sort of a virtual trip down under. I love that. Wonderful. So it's not mainstream, internationally known stuff. It's more locally known and loved pop culture um, for a more authentic Mm -hmm. experience. So I I will also give you a link to that. It's just a PDF file. Wonderful. Get, so get yourself some meat pies yeah. and, ah. and pavlova. <laughs> Make yourself a pavlova while you're, while you're stuck inside. Yeah, uh, do it. Nice bottle of wine and enjoy the culture of Australia. And we will definitely be posting all of those links and everything from Zoe. So uh, thank you again, Zoe. This was wonderful. Thank you. We had a and, great uh, time. You did a great job. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, we will catch you next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye.